0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, we'll be looking at some of the big green issues facing Ireland and the world, ahead of the Dublin Climate Dialogues Conference, which is happening next week. This event brings together big names from the United States, China, Europe, the UK, the United Nations, and of course Ireland, to discuss recommendations on accelerating the transition to net zero emissions. It's happening ahead of the COP26 annual UN Climate Change Conference later this year in Glasgow and will be chaired by former President of the European Parliament, Pat Cox, who joins me on today's show. I'm also joined by Mike Hayes, Global Lead on Renewables and Decarbonisation at KPMG. But I'll go to you first, Pat Cox. We're hearing an awful lot lately about the green transition and the need to move to zero emissions by 2050 but perhaps there's a lack of clarity about how we actually
1: get there. I think so. I, I think to put it in context, first of all, we are holding the conference as a kind of a, a pre-COP uh, 26 event. And it is based in Dublin in the O'Reilly Hall in UCD, a virtual conference. But in fact, it has a global focus. And the focus of our conference is looking at the policy environment with a very clear underlying sentiment that we need to accelerate and deepen uh, commitments uh, to address uh, global warming and that there's got to be a much greater sense of urgency. The uh, second dimension we're looking at is the whole area of uh, the role of capital. In part, the kind of financial flows or technology transfers needed to boost the capacity of developing countries to connect with this agenda globally, but also the issue around uh, finance and risk. And then, of course, a, a large part of it is on technology, because there are challenges, uh, there are issues, but there are also ways and means to answer this. And the technology part is a very important element in that contribution. In contextual terms, uh, Cliff, it's, it's easy to describe. Paris in 2015 set ambitious targets. The International Panel for uh, Climate Change, the scientists, were asked to report on what would it take to reach this 1.5 degree target as a scenario. And they said there's a certain budget of CO2 that could be put into the atmosphere annually by 2050 that might be consistent with a target of global warming of 1.5 degrees. In fact, at the rate we've been going since Paris so much greenhouse gas has been going into the atmosphere that we would use the budget from Paris to 2050 already by 2031. We're not doing enough collectively. We're not doing enough individually. We're not doing it by state, by corporation, by community on the scale required. And we think what's happening in Glasgow in November is a date with destiny. And we think we can make a contribution to consciousness raising among a wide community of interest with an audience that is partly Irish, but very much a global audience with global contributors, starting with John Kerry, with uh, contributions from China, from Japan, from uh, European Union, and of course, from the Irish government, which has begun to up its game and up its determination to be part of the delivery of the answers that are required.
0: I saw John Kerry recently referring to the COP twenty-six conference as the last best chance to avoid climate catastrophe. With the catastrophe looming, albeit some years still into the future, Pat, why is it so hard to coalesce you know, real action in, in, in this area? We've so many targets um We've shown such a high level of agreement, you know, internationally that that something needs to be done. That we need to do much better. it's such a serious problem. How do we actually move from that kind of policy consensus, if you like, to action? What are the key blockages we're facing?
1: I think some of the things are psychological, and some of them, of course, are down to policy and policy determination and instruments. I think on the psychological side, uh, Mark Carney has commented on this, and many have written about it. There is the gap between the perceived moment of crisis, which is at some indefinite date in the future during this century, and what we might do today. I think increasingly we are living with and seeing actual global warming outcomes on our climate that says to us more and more, this isn't tomorrow, this is now, this is the here and now. And if we look at extreme weather events, whether it's high or low temperatures, severe hurricanes, uh, extraordinary levels of precipitation and flooding, uh, wildfires, um, ocean uh, level rises, etc. All of this, both in terms of frequency and intensity, is getting worse and is getting worse faster. And so I think the notion, the psychological escape clause, well, it's not now, it's in the future, is beginning to run low, and that is one of the elements, I think, causing the willingness to consider more accelerated change. I think a second dimension, um, I know that uh, I've interviewed Mary Robinson. I know she's written about uh, what she called uh, for herself being a late comer to climate change. Uh, She's now, of course, very committed to it uh, as a key element in human rights because the poorest are suffering the worst burdens, and consequences of global warming, even though they've added the least to uh, to the atmospheric greenhouse gases. But she said when she saw images like polar bears in distress and so on, you know, that they were there, but somehow she wasn't connected to it. And so when she began to meet this at a very human level in the work she was doing uh, politically and through her foundation, that it really began to impact on her consciousness. So I think that issue is there. And the third element, I think our young generation, uh, Greta Thunberg is, I suppose, the lead example. But the fact is, a lot more people are now insisting that governments do more. And if I look at the uh, German Constitutional Court recently, where a case brought by citizens, but primarily young citizens, caused the court to accuse the German government of not going far enough. We've got a case here in Ireland. There was another successful case in the Netherlands. More and more, there are compelling societal, community, youth-based and other reasons why I think people are copping on that postponement is not an answer. Deferring the answer will make the problem worse. As one of our contributors, Professor Catherine Hayhoe uh, from uh, Texas remarked, we are now loading the climate dice against ourselves. The chances of rolling double sixes in bad news have increased and in fact, the intensity of what's happening now, including in her own home state of Texas, which she describes very eloquently in her interview, is such that the dice actually is throwing double sevens and double eights on occasions, so, so loaded is it, against our own interest and against the natural world and biodiversity. I was reading that one of the proposals,
0: and I think this is one of the things that will come up at the conference is a so-called club of countries might get together to take more serious action on the climate issue and, and start to charge uh, other countries for access to their markets, you know, in terms of the, of the carbon output of, of the products involved. Is that the kind of political structure, if you like, that might actually get something done?
1: Well, I, again, I think here you're, you're putting your finger on an important thing. Once you move from the consciousness of the need to act and the willingness to accelerate action – The next bit comes into what do you do and in the what do you do part you need to match policy objectives with policy instruments and the kind of policy instruments that we will be discussing are obviously things like carbon taxes, uh, about the earmarking of some of those taxes for a just transition, about the role of emission trading schemes and carbon pricing and offsets within that about carbon border adjustment mechanisms of the sort. They have to be consistent with World Trade Organization trade rules, but of the sort that definitively will be proposed by the European Union uh, in, in the coming weeks and the notion that Professor Nordhaus has won his Nobel Prize for on carbon clubs, which in effect the EU, if it states, charging carbon taxes, but avoiding or trying to avoid carbon leakages, either of trade or investment to countries that don't play by the same rules. This is where you get the carbon border adjustment mechanisms coming in. So there's a whole slew of policy instruments whose effectiveness quality and purpose we want to analyse in the course of our dialogues. It's not our call what judgments will do, but I think it is important to expose all of these instruments as the necessary elements that give you the leverage to turn good intention into real outcomes.
0: Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, Mike my case of KPMG, the, the second big area that's going to be looked at after policy in the conference is capital and the massive investment that is going to be needed over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Estimates all over the place, but they all seem to go into trillions of dollars per year even. What's your perspective on on harnessing capital from the private sector and from investors? Because clearly it can't all come from governments.
2: Hi, Cliff, uh, you're absolutely right. If we, you know, with all due respect to governments, you know, they are part of the answer, um, but they're not the only answer. And the vast bulk of this capital, and we are talking many, many trillions of of dollars or euros, whatever currency you want, is required to affect real change in this agenda. The two areas... Cliff, where we most need the capital to really drive forward action on climate are the following. The first is in developing countries. We are still finding it very difficult to deploy the vast, vast amounts of capital that does exist in the world today to fund projects on climate and sustainable energy in developing countries. And we have a global problem today, which is 800 million people without access to electricity. I could spend all day telling you the vast array of problems that that causes, way, way beyond the, the climate question. But because we're talking about high-risk countries where you've got issues such as cu- vast currency fluctuations, uncertain legal systems, poor infrastructure, and particularly around grids, Um, You've got issues around bribery and corruption. The problem is investors are not prepared to go there. And that is one of the single biggest issues we need to to tackle. The second one, Cliff, is on the innovation agenda. We are not going to get to the carbon or the low carbon or the, the net zero society that we all have ambition for and which we'll be discussing at the conference next week without innovation we have a range of very exciting technologies today but those technologies require vast development vast reduction in cost and also we are going to need new technology solutions if we're going to get there the reality in the market today is the money from investors is not flowing to technology i look at the at the success of the digital revolution over the past 30 years that succeeded because the investors came We are still at the early point of the climate agenda where we need to persuade investors to take on this risk. And if you look at the two issues I've just spoken about, developing countries and innovation, the common word is risk. We need to find a way to alleviate the risk and actually enable the capital to flow. And there's actually a number of ways to do that. And this is where I come back to governments. Governments will have to play a role in blending their money with private money to actually take on some of that risk They'll have to start implementing guarantee schemes to enable investors to get confidence that if some of the risks I articulated earlier happen, governments will step in to correct it. It's that type of bold action that's required if we're going to tackle the mobilisation of capital issue. Cliff, if I could, I just want to go back and actually talk again about capital, but talk about it in a slightly different way and bring it back to the, the points that Pat made. The other really important point about capital and investors in particular is governments clearly are reacting to climate change but investors are also and my message is follow the money all day long investors around the world have suddenly realized i think over the last 12 to 18 months that climate is a really serious issue it's going to impact the value of the investments that they've made and that they're planning to make and now what's happening is investment capital is saying we are only going to invest in companies who take the climate agenda seriously And that, for me, is one of the most important milestones on this battle. Once the money says, we want you to take action, corporations who want to attract this type of equity and debt funding from the capital markets are going to have to respond. And what's going to happen, Cliff, the the impact of the investors forcing the agenda is corporations around the world are going to have to pursue aggressive decarbonisation policies.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is notable the pressure coming from investors on that issue at the moment. Do you think that is... Starting now to drive change in Irish businesses, has there been a step change in the perception around Irish boardrooms about what needs to be done and the, the seriousness of this for their uh, long-term business position?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Irish business has been through an incredibly tough time recently with COVID-19 and Brexit. I, I'm very proud, of the way Irish business has responded. But unfortunately, my message to Irish business is the climate crisis is upon us. You know, it's not just about the physical risk of climate, it's about all of the changes in society. For example, the fact that customers are now looking for greener products and services. So Irish business is going to have to step up and deal with this challenge. You mentioned boardrooms. I can tell you pre-COVID-19, I didn't really see this as a boardroom issue in Irish business. I think the world has changed. I think the tipping point has been reached. It is now no longer a chief sustainability officer question. It is a CEO non-executive chairman issue. And it's not just in Ireland. Around the world, and it's very much coming from the big companies, first of all, Cliff, the big listed companies who are the ones most exposed to, to investors. They're the ones who are reacting. And what's actually happening, it's driving an, an effect right throughout industrial organisations throughout the world. I'm seeing it with Irish public companies, and I think it's going to come very quickly. I don't think it's there yet with the, with the big Irish private companies. But they are starting to recognise that their own marketplace is changing. They're starting to recognise that their own employees are demanding action. They're starting to recognise that customers and supply chains are saying, you have to be show us you are pursuing a green, sustainable strategy. If you're not going to do that, we're not going to do business with you anymore. That might sound a very dramatic statement, Cliff, but that is the reality of what's happening around the world. It's going to start happening in Ireland. And I, I, in this podcast, I'm going to echo a plea to Irish business to really start embracing this if you haven't done so already. I think many businesses have, but we really need this to spread right throughout the Irish industrial landscape.
0: Pat, in terms of business in general, do you see that kind of pressure now in the companies that you're involved with and the contacts you have becoming a, an increasing factor around, uh, around boardrooms? Because it certainly seems like it's essential that it should be.
1: Yes, and I I think the the pressure, again, to go back to uh, uh, politics, the the pressure will come through several routes. One of them, expect that the issue of measurement, reporting and verification of these key climate-related non-financial reporting questions will become a mandatory requirement on companies. Uh, What what, uh, wasn't measured didn't count too often, But from now on, these things will have to be measured and they will count. I think a a second uh, dimension in this is the uh, kind of uh, budgetary, the the climate budget, the carbon uh, ceilings that the uh, state here and other states will be uh, setting in terms of sectors. That is going to be a scenario based, a climate scenario based uh, requirement in which whole sectors will, will be measured. Um, a third element, I think, in all of this, when you bring it down to the level of uh, individual boards, I can see it in practice uh, here in Ireland. Um, I'm, I'm on a number of boards where, uh, and I'm on them deliberately by choice because of their sustainability credentials, where getting ready for this future is a core driver of the purpose uh, of, the, of the the board itself. Two, I would instance, Irish companies One of them, uh, a high-tech startup, Supernode, uh, which is uh, uh, an offshoot established uh, from mainstream by Eddie O'Connor. This is looking at the development of uh, much more cost-effective grid systems to deliver offshore wind energy to uh, the key centres of energy uh, demand on a much cheaper basis and a more efficient basis than the traditional copper copper cable system. This will be a total innovation uh, and will be wholly consistent with the need for radical electrification as a key driver of the energy transition away from fossil fuels. A second example of an Irish-led company, uh, and we're thrilled to see just in the past few days, the announcement that Breakthrough Energy Ventures... Uh, That company, uh, with uh, financial backing from Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, um, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Michael Bloomberg and others, uh, has uh, invested uh, 22.5 million euros in taking stock options in Ecosem, a low carbon Irish cement company. Uh, Cement, if it was a country globally, uh, would be the third or fourth largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. And so here's an Irish company uh, that has turned up on the radar screen of uh, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, whose key issue is they won't invest with you if you're not coming up with something that can't deliver at least uh, several gigatons of savings of CO2 over a certain time period. So these things are happening, and they're examples of start-up, are relatively small Irish businesses with huge potential. And of course, a vast unrealised potential here in Ireland lies offshore. Subject to getting all of the licensing and environmental conditions right in a marine environment, the Irish marine shelf, the coastal shelf, is about nine or ten times larger than the geographic footprint of the land-based territory of the island of Ireland. If we were to pick a space the size of County Cork, somewhere in Ireland's marine shelf, uh, offshore, and with all the due process around environmental conditionality, we could produce enough electricity to actually turn Ireland into a substantial contributor of energy to continental Europe. These things are feasible and can be done. Uh, They're not easily done. Uh, They take time to do. But if we want to get the answers right for 2050, when you're looking at long-term infrastructural investment, you've got to plant the right seeds now in order to develop the uh, technologies and infrastructure that can take up to a decade between planning and delivery. And then you've got a life cycle running on decades beyond it. So the time to plan 2050 for these kinds of infrastructures isn't in 2040. It's now. And these things need to happen in terms of uh, public policy. And the technologists are out there, hands up, willing, ready and able to have a go at this and to ensure that Ireland, among others, can be a player, a generator of income, growth and employment opportunities. As part of what Joe Biden said in the recent Earth Day Climate Summit that he hosted, that this is, yes, a big cost. But it is the biggest economic opportunity that has presented itself in generations because we need a transition from fossil fuels deeper and faster than any energy transition that has so far happened in human history.
0: Thanks, Pat. Yeah. Mike, is the kind of financing available for those massive long term projects that Pat's talking about? I mean, I know there are a lot of new uh, green financial instruments, green bonds, green equity whatever green securitizations but is that money going into the this kind of safer more predictable projects rather than the kind of big thinking longer term projects that pat is talking about there and, and if so how do we how do we bridge the gap if you like
2: yeah in fact Tiff, i've even stopped using the words green finance because you know this is now becoming mainstream so the whole financial community is going to have to embrace this this revolution and i i, I use that word deliberately. For the simple reason that, you know, we are talking about a transformation of all businesses, all sectors. And ca- as I said earlier, capital is going to be at the centre of this. And the type of projects that Pat is talking about, yes, there is money there, but it's back to the one question, which is risk. As long as we can get investors to understand and accept the type of risks involved, then they will come. And the parallel is very simple, Um, Cliff. I've been involved in the renewable energy industry in Ireland for about 22 years. For the first couple of years, we didn't have a clue where we were going to get the money. You know, the projects were happening and it was very exciting at the time. It was pioneering. But what we did, you know, it was not just me, it was many other people involved in the industry. We went out to the capital markets. We explained how these projects worked. We explained the business model how investors will be protected. And once we got investors comfortable with the risk, it's now the other, we've gone full circle, Cliff. Now we've got so many investors and not enough projects to satisfy their demand. But certainly the type of projects Pat is talking about, um, as long as we can manage the risks, as long as we can keep educating investors around those risks, yes, I think the money is available. Probably the best example of this in the market today is green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is going to have a huge role to play in the energy transition and the move to net zero over the next 20 to 30 years. The reality is that the cost of producing green hydrogen is prohibitive today. But even with that, there are some early stage investors who are coming in because they see the direction of Travel Cliff. They see that we are working to eliminate the risks And more importantly, innovation is going to bring the cost of green hydrogen down. So already investors are saying, you know, we came in too late into the renewable energy industry. We are not going to miss this opportunity. And I would encourage that type of thinking all day long. We need forward thinking investors who, yes, they recognize the risk, but also they recognize the way the world is going. And it's in one direction only. And it's towards zero carbon. Maybe tell us what green hydrogen is, Mike, and a little more about it. There's different ways of producing hydrogen. In fact, there's a multitude of colours associated with hydrogen, depending on how you produce it. Green hydrogen is um, a type of hydrogen produced from renewable energy using a process called electrolysis. And Pat spoke very passionately and correctly about the huge opportunity we have at Offshore Wind in Ireland we are seeing green hydrogen as part of that because all of that offshore wind that, we, wind that we can produce for electricity is probably far in excess of what the Irish market needs. And we're actually thinking that the outlet for all of that offshore wind is actually green hydrogen, which we hope long-term to export into the European market. So what's really fascinating is that Pat used the word opportunity and he's absolutely right. Through all of this, this is not just about risk. We're creating new economic opportunities for Ireland a new, a whole new export channel because we are absolutely certain and the EU Green Deal has said green hydrogen is definitely part of the future. The market will be there and I'm really encouraged by the fact that it's not just investors. The Irish government, as part of its longer term policy, is really starting to focus on the possibilities of exporting green hydrogen from offshore wind farms in the west of Ireland onto mainland Europe.
0: Okay, sounds like a whole new world. All right, Mike, very interesting. Final question to you, Pat. We have this massive agenda in front of us, but yet at the same time, you know, in recent budgets, we've been arguing about, you know, tiny increases in carbon tax in the sense of the impact they're going to have on on consumers and, you know, how far the government can go. Have we really got the kind of policy
1: consensus here, the kind of political dynamic that can allow this to happen? I think the politics of this is extremely important and i think a key issue and it's a phrase that comes up but it shouldn't be an empty phrase it has to be meaningful is recognizing that doing this is overall positive but like every dramatic transformative change that there are winners and losers and on the losers part we have got to give care and attention whether it is global or whether it is domestic and national to what is called the just transition. Simply deciding, let the winners take all and to hell with the losers, will not build the sustainable political support that is needed for the politics of sustainability. And we, we know the difficulties. Uh, we've seen it in France with the uh, pushback by the Gilets Jaunes against President Macron. Uh, we heard the phrase many years ago, uh, when the financial crisis uh, first broke, and before he was president of the European Commission, when Jean Claude Juncker said, as a politician, "We know what to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected after we've done it," and that is why I think here in Ireland, the kind of consensus that we've been trying to build, for example, the mobilisation of the thinking power of the Citizens Assembly, the mobilisation of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change seeking to get cross-party support and then the introduction of legislation seeking to get as wide a level of support in the houses of the Oireachtas as possible. These are key elements to do with the political and societal buy-in and your question is absolutely correct. Sustainability requires sustainable politics and that requires the active support of citizens. Pat Cox
0: and Mike Hayes, thank you very much. Pat, just a final word. The Dublin Climate Dialogues is on next Wednesday and Thursday. John Kerry, I understand, among the virtual attendees. Is this too late for people to sign up or can people still sign up to uh, to listen into to uh, what should be? No, conference? Uh,
1: everybody is welcome. It's free to sign up and um, you can get us at www.dublin.com com. That will sign you up and get you in free of charge. All are welcome. Great. Thanks, Pat. I suppose one of
0: the advantages of Zoom is that the hall is never full. Exactly. Pat and Mike, thanks very much for your time. Thank
2: you, Cliff. Thank you, Cliff.
0: Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our guests, to Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon on production and sound, and to all our listeners. Until next time, take care.